0: Welcome to Adventure Podcast. Later this episode, I'll be having an interview with Tom Griever about articulating design decisions, but first, I want to talk to you about limited edition marketing. So, if you haven't seen yet, Budweiser will temporarily be renaming its beer America this summer. This will go from May 23rd through the November election. So, the cans will have the same kind of Budweiser font, but it'll say America. They claim that their goal is quote to inspire drinkers to celebrate America and Budweiser's shared values of freedom and authenticity. Okay so this might all be true but let's look at it from a marketing standpoint. A lot of companies do limited edition projects from Ben and Jerry's ice cream to Volkswagen to Sun Chips which is my personal favorite. So often this is to promote or try out a new product, to give previous products a boost. They might be flagging in sales. Sometimes it's to help with seasonal cravings. So in the fall, not only are there pumpkin spice lattes, which are delicious, but everything's pumpkin. You can't walk through the store without seeing limited pumpkin foods everywhere you look. So another reason they do this is because it works. There was a poll done by Instantly that showed 20% of people say they buy limited edition things often. And 60% of those people say trying a new product flavor is the leading factor motivating their purchase. Okay, so Budweiser doesn't fall into this. They're not changing the flavor at all. They're changing like what the cans look like. But this also works because 30% of people do it because of unique packaging. So love design. If you haven't noticed, design is very important. Just because something looks different and people think it's cool, that can be a factor for buying things. That's probably what Budweiser is going for. They have some unique packaging. They think people will buy it. Maybe it will inspire people to celebrate America or maybe it will give them a boost in sales. So maybe this will be a good idea for Budweiser, but they should also be careful because if people don't like it, it can affect the brand image and Budweiser has been very deeply on its brand image for years. So good luck Budweiser, we'll see how America does this summer. So I am here with Tom Griever, an amazing UX UI designer, and also the author of Articulating Design Decisions. So how are you doing today, Tom?
1: I'm doing great, Hannah. Thanks for having me.
0: Excellent. I'm really excited to have you. Way before I thought of interviewing you, I read your book, and the way I read books is I take notes, <laughs> like I'm still in school. And so it was really easy to come up with questions for you, because I already had some.
1: Oh, great. Do you, do you write in the margins, or do you have like a separate
0: notepad that you keep? I have a separate little notebook. Um, your book, actually, my boyfriend owned it. So since it was his, I decided not to write all over it, because, mostly because he had already written all over it. So I wanted my notes separate.
1: <laughs> nice. Awesome.
0: Excellent. So let's rewind a bit. When did you first become interested in design? When you were younger, were you always very visual?
1: Um, Yeah, yeah. I think I've probably always been uh, something of an artist, uh, sort of no matter what I was doing. Um, I really began to kind of understand the value of visual design on the web in college um, because I was actually a marketing major, as a business major uh, for undergrad in college, and you know, designing things, whether it was a you know a poster or a website, was just kind of part of class projects. It seems like sometimes, and then I had friends who you know needed band posters or album artwork or whatever, and so I I just kind of picked up the tools and started using them, and I sort of accidentally. Found myself in full-time design roles um, as soon as I was out of college. I, I I expected to be more of a of a business person. I think uh, marketing side of things, and I kind I kind of kind of landed in design and have just kind of stayed there my whole career.
0: Well, how useful that now you have both sides of it. That must come in handy a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know it, it it really it really does. It's it's surprising just how practical all the business school stuff was. Uh, so yeah, I'm definitely grateful for that.
0: Yeah. So right now you're at Batovi. How did you end up there?
1: Uh, yeah. Sure. So uh, Betovi, um as a company, has been around for almost ten years now. Batovi originally was kind of a JavaScript engineering organization. Brian and Justin, the two guys who founded the the company, were um, you know building uh, web applications uh, for companies at a time when web applications weren't necessarily a big thing, and they. They started pouring kind of all their ideas for how to build web apps into open source JavaScript frameworks. And we actually had the very first uh, like JavaScript MVC uh, framework uh, that there was. And so that's kind of how the company was born, was we were doing uh, some really awesome stuff with JavaScript on the web at a time when very few people were doing that. And we've continued to grow and use those frameworks as, as kind of a way that we um, that we help other companies build their web apps. And, um, about four years ago, I think they, they ran into some issues where, um, you know, they would have a client say, oh, you know, we, we're not exactly sure what this interaction should look like. Can you give this to your designer? And they're like, oh, well, we're, we're only engineers. We're only developers. We don't have a designer. And, um, you know, in one particular case, they were working on, a, on an application that was really impressive like from a technology perspective right it was like super awesome but the experience on top of it and the UI was so bad that it was kind of embarrassing to show people so it was kind of like they had this Ferrari with like a Volkswagen Beetle like shell on the outside <laughs> and they weren't exactly sure what to do that and so at that point that they they realized you know if we really want to build amazing applications we're going to need to own the whole front end, and that includes UX and design, and, and so that's where I kind of came into the conversation. I met them when I was living in the Chicago area, and not long after that, joined, uh joined the staff and have kind of started the design uh, team now, and uh, so now we do all front end uh, design and, and development for a bunch, of, a bunch of companies, some really, really big and, and some startups. So.
0: Excellent. Yeah, you, it sounds like you're really happy with it. It gives you a lot of stuff to do.
1: Yeah, it, it does. And I, I really, I mean, it's it's fun to work on projects at the scale of, say, Walmart, you know, and, and kind of try to solve really, really hard problems there. Um, but it's also a ton of fun to work with a startup that is just brand new and it just kind of has an inkling of an idea and watching that idea come to life. So we, we, we have a wide variety of, of, of projects and it, it keeps us busy and, and happy for sure.
0: So even with that all going on, you managed to also write a book, Articulating Design Decisions. Which came first? Did you decide that you wanted to write a book and then you picked this topic or was the topic begging you to write about it?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, at Batovi, we put a strong emphasis on um, on training and on open source and just generally kind of giving back to the community. And so Part of my role when, when I first started was trying to figure out how we can translate that into uh, the design industry and design community and so with all of our clients we do we do training um, we, we do more formalized training where we go on site and we actually do kind of classes but part of our job when we work with clients is not just to design something for them and then kind of hand over these assets and you know leave it on their doorstep and be like okay good luck you know have fun with that but we actually, kind of teach them best practices as we go, right? We involve them in our processes and we hope to leave them in better shape than than we started. And so part of that involves, you know, going to conferences and speaking. And I was asked to submit a talk for a conference in St. Louis, uh, which is close to where I live. And articulating design decisions was one of those, um, one of those topics, one of the ideas that I proposed to this conference, and that was the one that they picked. But Believe it or not, it was like it was the, mo- the least interesting to me of, of all of the ideas that I had <laughs> submitted because it just seemed like it was so kind of uh, mundane and like every day. Like, I mean, this is stuff I do every day. I mean, I, I design for a living, but I probably spend 50 percent of my time telling other people why I did what I did. Right. And it just seemed like kind of a boring topic. Well, they, that's what they wanted me to talk about. So I made it into a talk. And I delivered it in St. Louis, and uh, the response was overwhelming. I mean, people were really excited about it. And so then I was asked to speak at another conference uh, to give the same talk later that same year. And then O'Reilly was a sponsor of that conference, and they were in the audience and and they approached me afterwards and asked if I could turn it into a book, and that kind of started the whole the whole journey. So it really started as as a as a conference talk. and then sort of as you gauge people's response and you kind of change stuff and find out what people were interested in. It just kind of grew from there.
0: I'm curious now, what were some of the other topics you proposed? Are we going to be seeing some more books on these topics?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I don't even remember. And I I've, this is not the first time I've been asked that question. And I looked back in my <laughs> emails and I was trying to find the history and I, I couldn't find it. So I don't even remember now. It's all a blur.
0: Well, it seems it like you talk in your book a lot about how when you're doing designs and things, you take a lot of notes. And when you're at different conferences, meetings, you take a lot of notes. So would you consider yourself to have been sort of a writer before that? Do you have much writing experience?
1: Um, I don't have a lot of writing experience. I would say I enjoy it. I, I don't consider myself to be the best writer necessarily. So I don't think I have natural talent. I know for sure that I had some... Uh, English teachers that would definitely would be in disbelief that I had written a published book. <laughs> so, uh, so no, not not really. I, I enjoy the process, and I, I enjoyed writing this book. But it's, I mean, it's a it's really hard work. And I would say, I, I, you know, use the the risk of publishing a print book is that you kind of always have this thing out there that you look at that your wish could be different or could be better or update. You know, you see all the flaws in it, and that, that's kind of how I feel.
0: Yeah. So there's a quote from your book where you mention that you realized at some point all your favorite designers were people who could intelligently explain why they did what they did. So were th- some of these favorite designers co-workers or people you saw online?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it was mostly people that I'd had the experience of, of working with. I When I look back on either... You know, they're, you know, mentor types that were maybe my boss or even just other colleagues that were more at a, at a peer level. The people that I felt like I connected with more, that I was maybe more inspired by um, wanting to kind of be like them, were the people that were really good at like getting up in front of a group of people at a design review and saying, here's why we did what we did and convincing them that this was the way to go. And and it was kind of a subtle thing. I don't think I really connected those dots until I until I started thinking about this topic um, more, uh, more concretely, and I thought, you know, this this is really the skill that that sets apart
0: uh, designers. Yeah, it's amazing what you can see when you kind of look back, and you start to notice all these patterns in people.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Was there any designer you considered to sort of be your mentor at any point?
1: Um, not one in particular. I mean, I would say that i probably had had several uh, over the years. And surprisingly, uh, maybe, I don't know if it would be surprising or not, but some of them were people that may not have been designers in their, in, in their full-time profession. Uh, so for example, there's one manager in particular that I, that I worked with that I remember being really good at this, even though he wasn't a designer himself. And that, and that was something that I think inspired me to watch, to watch a non-designer be skilled at, at explaining design to other people. You know, they, they they sort of act as that mediator, maybe between the designers and the executives. And I think I think watching that play out in several different companies where I worked was was really um, influential.
0: Yeah, and that's supposed to be one of the best ways to learn something yourself. If you're trying to kind of teach it to other people, it really helps your understanding.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, think, I think years of kind of watching people and, and quite honestly, making mistakes myself, you know, uh, trying something and and seeing it not work, or kind of looking back on, on situations where I feel like it went well, uh, that, that's what really helped me to kind of uh, write all this stuff down so that I could, you know, hopefully help other people.
0: Absolutely. So your book is all about being able to explain your design decisions when you hear people say good design speaks for itself. Do you have to hold back rolling your eyes at them?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, maybe so. I think that that's, that's kind of this popular phrase, right? Good design. Um, it should be like a joke, right? If you have to explain it, that it's not, <laughs> it's not very good, but um, that's definitely a point that I would, I, where I would, I would disagree with, uh, you know, a lot of people. Um, I don't think good design does uh, speak for itself. I think we, we are the advocates for our users and for our work and other people who don't, you know, value the same things that we do in design. They, they need to understand the logic and the reason b- behind why we did what we did. I think, no matter how often you say it, um, people still think that design is just about pretty pictures, and that's purely subjective. And so we have to remove that subjectivity by helping them see: no, there, there was a, there was a purpose in this. You know, we had kind of a logic behind it. And when you can help people see that, you know, hey, we're actually kind of smart. We know what we're talking about. We did this for a reason. We're not just kind of throwing things up on the wall and seeing what you quote unquote like. Um, I I think when people can see that, they're more likely to to trust us uh, with those decisions, maybe even when they disagree with us.
0: That makes a lot of sense. If you see the process and you know that there's thought behind it, then it's a lot easier to trust somebody.
1: That's right. Design, design happens in kind of a black box for a lot of people, right? It's this, it's this mystical thing that talented people go off and do. And, and, that, if, and that if you're a, a, a creative, if I, can, if I can use that word to describe uh, some of what we do, if you're a creative, it's possible for you to just like go off and spend 10 minutes and have this brilliant idea and come back with it. And it seems so easy, right? The, the best solutions ob, uh, often feel like they were the simplest solutions, and they, and they feel like something that you should have been able to come up with in, in just a few minutes. But it, the reality is far from that, and I think when people are detached from that process, and, and they don't know what our thinking was, it becomes very easy for them to minimize our work to nothing more than you know just a simple change, or it's just a few minutes, or you should be able to just go away and come back with something tomorrow, right? And, and that's not the, the way that it works, and, and I think we, we've got to help people kind of understand that
0: yeah i think that applies for any field they just people don't always know what goes into something and how much work it can be and all the things that have to align to make something work in a design
1: yeah that's right that's absolutely right we we can spend you know hours and hours trying to get to the right solution and all they see is that end result right and it's true that that last iteration that we did (laughs) it only took us 20 minutes to iterate again and and get it. They're not seeing the 20 other iterations we did before that that eventually led us to to that point.
0: So let's start giving some advice on, once they have the lovely design, how to talk about it more. So I have a quote from your book. Why is this design better than the alternative? Implicit in this question is that we know what the alternatives are, We've considered them or even tried them, and we're prepared to explain why our solution is better. So I've found when I'm trying to design something that it's important for me to ask these questions as I'm designing. It seems to help me find any changes I might need to make quicker and help me make other decisions. Is this a good strategy? Should I be doing this from the beginning, or do you recommend waiting until a design is done and then thinking how you would explain it?
1: No, you absolutely have to be doing it from the beginning. And I think this is part of the, the problem for a lot of people is that we're, we're not accustomed to asking ourselves the right questions as we work. Uh, I think the problem is when we wait until the end and we go, oh, here's the solution. Not really sure why I did it. Now let me make up some reason that sounds good, right? I don't think that's a good way to approach the problem. The, the Sort of the foundational questions of the book are uh, based around uh, three things um, your ability to answer these three questions the first one is what problem does this solve um, so you know if we can if we can articulate the problem that we're solving to people then that's going to help them kind of understand the, the context the next one is how does it affect the user right because we're doing we're doing user centered design so we also have to be able to explain how what we're doing is going to affect the end user and then the last one is what you're referring to which is why is it better than the alternative right we we have to try alternate designs and, and and often we do and we arrive at kind of our final recommended approach but we for, we kind of forget what all those alternates were or or we discard them or we don't bring them to the meeting we're not prepared to talk about them but we have to be able to answer this last question especially why is it better than the alternative because if we don't people are going to suggest that same obvious thing that we started with in the beginning, right? And and unless we're prepared to kind of help them understand, no, I, you know, I I tried that. Here's why it doesn't work. Here's how we got to where we're going. That's absolutely a critical part of the process. So I always encourage people to, yeah, take notes while you're designing, answer those those three questions as you go. If you can, if you learn, you know, learn nothing else from the book, just learning to answer those three questions as you go can go a really long way to helping you be articulate in the moment of a meeting.
0: If I remember properly, I think you also recommended, if it's possible, show them what they were thinking. So if it's something you tried already and you kind of ruled it out, but you still have a copy of that design, like show them side by side so they can see why the newer version is better. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And then there are a few ways that you can do that. One, as you noted, is showing the comparison where you have both of them, you know, up on the screen or on the wall or kind of however you do it. But the, the point is it's, it's harder to understand the differences between some of these options um, in isolation, and, and so bringing them together is, is really, really important. But um, I think sometimes we get scared of, of showing people our these alternate solutions, these designs that got discarded, the ones we think don't work, because we're afraid that they'll pick it. <laughs> right? We're, we're afraid they'll choose the one that we don't recommend. But I don't think we can presume to protect our clients and our stakeholders from these alternate designs that exist out in the world because they'll figure them out, right? If we only give them one option and we say, "Hey, here it is, and here's why I did what we did," and, and we kind of move on for life, even if they agree with us, we still run the risk of them going home and talking to their spouse, and their spouse says, "Well, why didn't we put a monkey on it, right?" And then, and like, "Oh, that's a good, that's a good point." I I'll send. Them a message right now, right? And we have to be able to arm our stakeholders and our our clients. We we have to give them the same uh, ammunition that we have to understand why we did what we did so that when they do get in those situations, they're standing at the water cooler, they're talking to some other executive and they say, hey, why didn't we do it this way? They they can at least respond and say, you know, I, I. this is what Tom told me, and this this was the explanation that that he gave me, right? I I think we'll be better prepared to kind of fend off uh, some of these designs that we don't recommend um, if we're we're able to kind of help them have that same vocabulary.
0: Yeah, it seems like if you talk about it up front, then it can save you a lot of time explaining it separately later.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and exactly how you present those designs will vary, and I and I go into some details uh, in, in in the book about it. I, I don't mean to suggest that you should bring all twenty of your designs and put them up on the wall and discuss all of them. Right, that that can be a major distraction, which is a whole a whole other topic in the book about removing some of these distractions. The point is, we have to know why we chose what we chose, and part of that involves um, understanding where the alternative designs fit into that conversation. Um, I I, I absolutely recommend bringing the one design that you recommend. But when someone comes to you and says, well, why didn't we do it this way? You're at least prepared to talk to that. And you maybe even have the design with you and you can pull it up and be like, okay, here it is. We tried that. Here's why it doesn't work.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And you've talked about how when you're using different design terms, how you can kind of help stakeholders learn that learn those terms and that information. So a different quote from the book is, repeating what our stakeholders say using terms that will be helpful to the conversation is a great step towards common language. So this stuck out to me right away because I actually have a background in education and we were taught to do this right away with children who are still kind of learning how to formulate their sentences and use their proper words but I'm wondering how it translates with adults. How do you keep yourself from sounding condescending when you're kind of correcting their design language?
1: Right, and, and so th- this is a key point because probably many of the difficulties that we have talking to people about design stem from a misunderstanding of terminology or a lack of a shared vocabulary. And if you're on a design team, or if you're on a even like an agile team, a cross-functional team, or whatever, you, you probably have more opportunities to build that vocabulary together as a team, right? Um, you might even have a formalized process for agreeing on what terms mean what, and and that's a great way to do it too. Um, in my experience, though, so you know, when you're working with executives or managers, in my case, I'm a consultant, and so sometimes you might be working with a client for the first time. You don't always have the, the benefit of, of, of pouring those learnings into them over years, right? Instead you have to kind of very quickly adjust and help them understand what you're talking about. But you're right that, it, that it's a problem um, to not come off as condescending. And, and the best way that I know how to do it is to repeat and rephrase back to them what they said um, in a way that is going to tr- phrase it, that, that, that's going to position it in kind of a better vocabulary, right? So someone, you know, says, oh, I, I don't like this thingy over here. You can say something like, oh, I see. Yeah, this carousel was placed here for this reason. And people are smart. They'll pick up on the vocabulary that, that you use. You don't have to emphasize it too much. Um, vocabulary, Terminology that it's it's really really crucial that people get on board with this, the you know, kind of using the same words and understanding each other because that, that's where many of the communication breakdowns happen.
0: Yeah, rephrasing definitely sounds like a better strategy than just saying like, "Oh, do you mean to say carousel?" <laughs> and kind of explicitly correcting. Um, I think I agree. I think people catch on really quickly when the phrases kind of change. They know to pick up on the vocabulary.
1: That's right, and they'll they'll recognize probably that they're kind of they may be out of their comfort zones, right? That they they may be talking about something that they don't have expertise in, and so they're listening to you. They're they're hearing the words that you use, and it's okay to repeat that word, you know, a few times as you talk. They'll they'll eventually pick up on it.
0: Yeah. So let's get to a sad topic. So even. When you're having great conversations, sometimes as a designer, you're going to make mistakes, it's bound to happen, and you address that, you say that it's important to quickly admit your mistake, but have a solution prepared, so you admit it, you say what the solution is that you can do, and then that's actually useful because they need you to correct the problem. And that makes sense, but it also sounds terrifying. So do you recommend breaking bad news about designs over email, phone, or is that something that should really be done in person?
1: Yeah, you know, it's going to depend entirely on this, the situation. If it's a simple thing where, you know, I don't know, you, you agreed on a design last week, you ran a quick user test and you found it wasn't as effective as you thought, sure, just email the team and be like, hey, I think we made some wrong assumptions here. We need to kind of backtrack. If it's a, if it's more of a major thing, like oh my gosh, we put a red button into production and conversion just dropped by like twenty percent, and we're losing thousands of dollars, right? That's a whole different situation in which it might make sense to like drop what you're doing and and go seek out the person that you need to you know talk to about making that making that change. So kind of the degree of, of that is going to depend on the 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 situation that you're in. But I think I think the point in the book is that we we shouldn't be afraid to own up to uh, you know mistakes when when they happen. And I think this is where kind of that designer ego like I know you know I know what's best for the user. I know what's I, I know what's uh, what looks better visually. Those things can kind of get in the way of us really being productive. And um, it, it all goes back to those three questions I talked to at the beginning, right? Um, if it's not solving the, the problem, then we're wrong. If it's not making things easier or better for our users, then we made a mistake. And, and, and we have to be able to answer those questions and to, to find out if our designs are actually being effective. And if they're not, we need, we need to fix them. I think sometimes people are scared of you know, losing their job or developing a bad reputation. But I, I think there's an opportunity there to build more trust by just by going straight to the source and being like hey we made a mistake here's what i suggest we do to fix it and then they they're relying on you to fix that problem right then they can't do it without you and i i think there's more of an opportunity to build trust there than there is to to tear it down i think people don't appreciate you know smoke and mirrors or kind of sweeping stuff under the rug i think it's better to just get it out in the open let's talk about this and let's fix it
0: Yeah, I think trust is the really important thing you're talking about, because if you insist on something that doesn't work, and then people notice that you changed it later, they're going to realize that some kind of mistake went on. So it's better to be open about it and explain like, hey, it actually didn't solve this problem, but this will, and that should work a lot better.
1: Yeah, and and I think even in cases where maybe the mistake you made wasn't detrimental, I mean, maybe we're not talking about a quote unquote mistake. Maybe we're just talking about we you know, we had a difference of opinion with another stakeholder on the project. You know, he wanted blue and I wanted red, and I decided, you know, that I'm the expert and he trusted me to go with red. And then after we watched it, we were like, yeah, it turns out red doesn't really work very well. So I'm gonna change it to blue. Yeah sure, it would be easy to just do that and not ever say anything, but I think it's far better to go back. People always like to hear that they were right in the first place. Place right. I mean, what do you what do you have to lose in that situation to go, back, to go back to the stakeholder and be like, "Hey, man, you were totally right about blue, and I'm sorry that I insisted on red." You know, that's that's a great opportunity to build trust and show people that you're not afraid to do what's right. Um, that's far more valuable than than having pride over our our works or t- too much pride, I should say.
0: Yeah, everyone definitely. Well, I think, too, even if it's like a little thing, people like to feel like they're involved. Even if they know they're not an expert in design, they still want to be involved in the process and give some feedback. So if they actually said something really constructive, it's definitely good to acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned trust. Trust is absolutely key to all of these conversations. And so much of what I talk about in the the early parts of the book are about relationships, Right. And um, if you just if you don't have a good rapport with the people that you're working with, it's going to be a lot more difficult to get their buy in on your design decisions. The more trust that you have, uh, the easier that that becomes.
0: So you have a quote from somebody else in the book. You have a quote from George Bernard Shaw that is the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. So I think I remember you often send emails after meetings and things like that correct
1: yeah yeah sure this is this is in the chapter about kind of what to do after the meeting yeah
0: so have you found that that helps a lot when people maybe were misunderstanding things because it's really easy to be in some meeting and kind of nod and think you know what's going on and then people leave the meeting and everyone is actually having all these misunderstandings has that seemed to help like significantly to have those kind of wrap-up emails so everyone can remember what happened and who's going to take care of everything?
1: Yes, absolutely and I think this this is this is the opportunity to kind of put down in writing um, what was agreed upon so that there's no question about what we discussed there's nothing worse than leaving a meeting and thinking you agreed on something and then later finding out that that there was a misunderstanding and so this is your chance to kind of clear that up. I saw a uh, I saw a cartoon recently that was two guys walking out of a conference room uh, saying something to each other like, all right, let, let's, let, now let's go like, undo all the decisions that we, that we just tacitly agreed to, <laughs> right? Because this is what happens. Sometimes people get in a meeting and they don't necessarily want to cause a fuss and everyone nods their heads and they're on their phones. I have another meeting to go to and then we all leave and it's not until later that one person starts to really think about it and they go, huh, I'm not sure I agree with that. Let's do something different. You need to write this stuff down for a number of reasons. Um, But one of those is to create that history so that later on when someone says, hey, why did we do it this way? You don't have to go all the way back to square one. You don't have to start over. Um, You can refer to these notes, to this history of your design decisions, and show them, you know, hey, Susan told us to make this Change in this meeting on this date, and here's the reason why. When you can do that, you're gonna save you and your team a whole lot of time and headaches. And you know, at, at a lot of companies, management turns it turns over. New manager comes in and says, you know, start over. Why did we do it this way? And you've got to be able to have that that history. And so that opportunity to write those notes, to create that documentation, to send out those follow-ups that say, here's what we decided. Are, are, are very effective at, at sort of maintaining your sanity on these projects.
0: Yeah, I've actually just started reading one of Richard Branson's books, um, the guy who's all about the Virgin Airlines and everything, and it sounds like he yeah. takes a lot of notes, too. People have accused him of, like, recording phone conversations, and he's like, I do, but I do it with a pen and pencil.
1: <laughs> right, and I, yeah, and I think, I, I think we forget uh, – I don't know. It's it's so easy to believe that we'll remember everything, but we don't. Um, and if you if you're the kind of person that has a hard time taking notes, then I, I would encourage you to find like a note buddy. Like ask someone else to come to your meeting ex- specifically for the purpose of taking notes. Um, I've been in meetings where I've asked you know a colleague, "Hey, I'm going to this meeting, but will you please follow me? And all I want you to do is just take notes, just write down decisions and and stuff." That allows me to stay focused on being articulate, to stay focused on thinking about what the other people are saying, processing how I'm gonna respond, um, while someone else is writing down everything that, that, that was recorded. Uh, that's absolutely critical, I think.
0: Yeah, I've read articles about people too who kind of don't just write words, but do little doodles, and then they look back later and they remember things so much better because they have their notes and the little pictures and they just have this great overview of what happened.
1: Oh sure, there are all kinds of like different systems for better note taking, right? There are there are different ideas about, about how to do that. I don't necessarily, you know, prescribe or recommend one. I, everyone is a little bit is a little bit different. The key to taking good notes is to make sure that they're that they're specific, right? They're specific enough. That to understand the, the, the context, that they're they're referenced, so like if you're referencing maybe some other application or some website or a Jira ticket or whatever it is that you have kind of those reference materials in there, um, and that you even put people's names next to what was discussed or where a decision was. I, I've actually found that to be really useful, that when you decide, okay, we, we, we agreed that we're moving forward with this decision. You can actually kind of put the name of the person who was championing that idea. And sometimes I'll even put like a short list of the people who disagreed with that decision, too. Um, it, It always helps when you're going back and looking over that history.
0: Absolutely. Anything that'll help with communication is good. So actually wanted to, towards the end, name what you said is the most important thing you can do to improve communication between you and stakeholders which is to earn trust, establish a report that will speak more few than the words that come out of your mouth in a meeting. So what are the best ways you found to improve relationships with stakeholders?
1: I mean, probably the most effective thing is to have a history with people, right, I, and, I, and I think that's probably pretty obvious. The people that you've worked with the longest, the people you're closest to, the people you know the best and that know you the best, those are the, those are easier opportunities to build trust because there's a history there. Uh, the challenge is when you're at a new company, uh, maybe you have a new client, you just haven't been on a project for very long, it's difficult to get to know people. And I think that sometimes we stay, we stay too busy in our little bubbles trying to get jobs done, That we forget just how human everyone around us is, and the way that someone responds to you in a meeting uh, about your designs may not have anything to do with you at all. It it probably doesn't have anything to do with you at all, right? People have other stuff going on in their lives, and I don't mean to suggest that we should pry into people's personal lives, but I do think there's an element of just being real with people, ask them how they're doing. You know, try to find common interests. You know, what what, what things do I have in common with this person that we can just chit chat about? You know, in the hallway, so that I can get to know them. When people start to see you as human, because you have started to see them as human, that builds up that trust. And the more you can do to establish those relationships, the, the better off uh, you'll be. That that could, you can even do things like just writing. Uh, simple notes to people, you know, like giving them a thank you card for something they did for you or for doing a good job on a project. You know, um, I do stuff like that. And I, and I think it goes a really long way to helping people see that, you know, we're not just robots. We're not just like cogs in this machine, but that we're people and that we're working together and that we're all on a team kind of headed in the, in the same direction.
0: I think that does go a really long way. When you get to work with big groups of people, it can be hard sometimes just to remember people's names. So if you remember someone's name and you take the effort to maybe write them a note, ask them how they're doing, I think people really remember that.
1: And and, and I am horrible at remembering names. I am really really bad at it. And so I will I, I'll create like org charts um, for teams and and put titles next to it and kind of try to understand who's connected to whom because that makes it easier for me to 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 reference and it, it would not be uncommon for me to be in a meeting and kind of try to pull that up on my phone to be sure i understand whose name is 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 what and i, I don't know sometimes i think we're a little too embarrassed to admit that we forgot someone's name that we just met um, so, I, I mean, just I think it's okay to just learn to kind of own that and to just tell them, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I've already forgotten your name. Or be sure you're pronouncing people's names correctly even, right? I, 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 pr- I pride myself in trying to learn how to pronounce people's uh, names and um, I think that's important to showing that, you know, like I, I care enough about you as a person to really understand how to even just say your name, right? And that, that's kind of basic it
0: seems. Yeah, I actually have a pretty long last name that's hyphenated. And a lot of people, the second, like I tell them, they're like, the second part is Harper. They're like, how about I just go by Harper? And they don't even bother to try and learn the whole last name. So I really appreciate it when people try to learn how to actually pronounce my name or anything like that. It's really appreciated.
1: Yeah. So I have a a colleague who, um, who lives in Chile. And um, we our whole team was in Phoenix last week, and and he brought his his girlfriend. And she had a very uh, she had a very unusual name that was hard to pronounce. And um, you know, when when you first get introduced to people, it can be embarrassing. you know, they they tell you your name and you say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. What was it? And by after the third time they say it, you want to just move on but i pushed through i pushed through that moment i was like okay no i want to know how you spell it and i want to practice repeating it back to you because it's important for me to be able to say someone's name if i'm actually going to like create a connection with them so we, we have to kind of put that away put our pride away and 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 just be sure that we we're connecting with people in a in a real way
0: yeah absolutely and the more you put it off the more awkward it's going to be if it's a few months later, and you still can't say her name properly, so better to admit right off that you don't know how, so you can learn it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and because, well, the other thing it does then, is then it makes an impression, right? So in this particular case, um, she met a lot of people that week, right, Um, besides just me, but she might remember her interactions with me a little bit more because we took the time to kind of talk through that, and um, I think there's there's value in in that, but anyway, naming (laughs) So talking about names, learning how to pronounce people's names is certainly, is certainly important, but I mean there are a number of things like that that you can do to just show people that you, you actually care about them, you know, that you're not just kind of disregarding them and, and their role, but that you're actually kind of taking the time to understand that, that they're a person.
0: Yeah, they have outside lives out of creating a design at that moment. There's a lot of other stuff going on with everybody.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, we've covered all the questions that I really wanted to ask. Is there anything you really want to mention about what you're currently doing or anything else about articulating design decisions?
1: Um, yeah. So, I mean, like I said before, I'm I'm a designer and I work for uh, Batovi. We have a, a team of great designers and developers. We're always looking for new and interesting projects. So I think there's always opportunities there. I'm um I'm still kind of traveling around and talking to different groups about about the book. I'll be in uh, I'll be in Raleigh durham in in July, and I'll actually be in Europe uh, this fall. so I'm kind of looking forward to um, getting out and talking to people about about the book. I, I I would and I would love to hear from from people. I absolutely love to hear. Uh, from people's, you know, experience of either reading the book and kind of putting stuff in practice, or sometimes people will email me and kind of tell me an idea or, or a best practice that they had that I, that's not in the book. Um, I, I love that stuff. I, I'm very passionate about this topic. I think it's a, it's a critical skill that is missing from a lot of designers' toolkits, and so I think anything we can do as a community to help each other be better about it and kind of get this out in the open and talk about it is, is really, really important.
0: Yeah, the more dialogue about it, the better.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Hannah.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure to check back in because I have a lot of exciting things coming up for you.